Well, welcome back to um, our study of Ecclesiastes, the mystery book that is not so mysterious now that we've uh, been going through it and are very far along in it. Thank you for joining me in this uh, journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. You'll recall from our last uh, lesson that we uh, did uh, two of the um, pieces of advice or uh, sermon points, however you want to see it, of the writer of Ecclesiastes, the teacher. And that was number eight and number nine. Number eight was uh, cultivate contentment. And number nine was um, a minority with God is a majority. Now, number 10, which is the last, um, the last uh, point in his uh, long sermon, number 10 is seize the day. Seize the day. And this one's kind of a long uh, section, uh, taking as it does um, all of chapter 11 and... Um, it um, may not look like it would be very long, um, and it's going to actually go into a little bit of chapter 12. So all of chapter 11 and half of chapter 12, it may not look like it's all that long, looking at your Bible. There's only 10 verses in chapter 11. But it is, in fact, uh, a fairly long section. So uh, let's get into it. <clears throat> what we're going to do is read... Um, we're going to read chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. So here we go. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind, and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning, do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. All right, uh, a somewhat obscure passage, to be sure. Um, like much of Ecclesiastes, um, if, if not all of Ecclesiastes. As we've seen going through Ecclesiastes, uh, there is a lot of mysterious language, a lot of nuances, a lot of symbolism, and this not, should not be surprising. Being one of the five wisdom books found in the Bible, uh, Ecclesiastes does use very, <clears throat> very... Um, speculative and intuitive language, for sure, or at least um, language that has to be uh, somewhat intuited. So, let's start out with the first verse, cast your bread on the surface of the waters. Um, this passage, uh, chapter 11, 1 through 6, is often misunderstood um, by, by many, unfortunately. And it is often um, 
is often uh, described as a passage that is talking about um, investments and uh, diversification, you know, you know, but don't put all your eggs in one basket <clears throat> sort of thing. And not only is that not in keeping with the flow of the book or the flow of the surrounding passages in, in uh, the chapter before and the chapter after, it really is based on really just uh, two words. Um, the word cast in verse 1 and the word divide in verse 2 in the New American Standard, which is what I have. Uh, you'll find that later versions, and if you look into the, the uh, Hebrew, you'll find that that really is not supported. Those ideas aren't supported. So the NES did really a, a pretty poor job right here. Because, for example, in verse 1, the word cast is actually a word that is to un unwrap or uncurl your hands, your fingers, from something. To let go, in other words. To let go. And even the word divide, in verse 2, is not divide at all. It's, it's actually give. It's actually the word give. And the ESV actually um, renders it give. And the NLT renders cast correctly also as really uh, be generous. So the writer of Ecclesiastes in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 11 is actually going to say six things. And it just so happens we have six verses. He's going to say six things. And all of them are going to be about giving. Now if you've been around churches or in a church, if you're part of a church or not, you know that it is not it is not um, often that you have churches talk about giving. It's not a subject they, they really want to talk about. And that's um, that's kind of an overreaction probably from you know modern, Modern times and modern and experiences with with that, that people have had with churches and 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 so churches try to avoid uh, being almost confrontational in terms of messages on giving, but here we have a, a fairly in depth message on giving. So let's let's do what the passage talks about. Let's look at it and let's um, see what it says. So what we have here is the first thing that the writer is saying is, verse 1, is be generous. He's saying be generous, which is, again, exactly the, the thing that the NLT says, which is really nice. Uh, verse 2, the second thing he says is, not only give and not only be generous, but give liberally, which is kind of an extension of being generous. Liberally. Here's what he says. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight. Verse 2, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. This mechanism, this tactic of using one number and then following it with another, is very Proverbs-like. If we were to flip over to chapter 30 of Proverbs, uh, beginning basically in the middle of the chapter, verse 15, we would see this technique used uh, a handful of times. 
For example, verse 15, chapter 30 of Proverbs, the leech has two daughters, give, give. There are three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough. Verse 18, there are three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. Verse 21, under three things the earth quakes, and under four it cannot bear up. Do you see? Verse 29, there are three things which are stately in their march, even four which are stately when they walk. It's very Proverbs-like for the writer of Ecclesiastes back in chapter 11, verse 2. It's very much like reading Proverbs when he says, there, you know, give your portion to seven or even to eight. So, so this is a technique at the very least of emphasis, isn't it? It's drawing your attention. It's emphasizing. But there's actually something more. And that is, most Bible, evangelical, conservative Bible scholars believe that the word seven here is denoting completion, fulfillment, wholeness. Um, you can't go too far with, with numbers in Scripture, but there is a lot of interesting nuances about numbers in Scripture, as long as you don't take it too far. But he, we can at least safely say that the number seven here is probably a mechanism for describing the least you can do, a complete kind of giving. And then when he says eight, he's saying more. Do you see what I'm saying? When he says give to seven or even to eight, he's saying give what you should and even a little more. Do you see? He's saying be liberal. So the first... Um, the first thing is uh, be generous. The second is be liberal. And now the third thing, verse 3. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. Wow, there's a, there is an obscure text. The tree falling sounds like that uh, western... Um, saying about if a tree falls and there's no one in the forest, does it make a sound? Which is kind of silly. And, and of course, this has nothing to do with that. But what it is to do with is he's beginning to talk about, he's beginning to talk about pushback that people might have about giving. And in fact, for the rest of the uh, section, Verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, he's really describing objections people will have and objections people do have, excuses, if you like, uh, for not giving. So verse 3, if the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. He's saying, don't hoard. He's saying, don't hoard the resources, the money, if you like, that God has given you and that you can bless others with, that you can share with others. Don't hoard. He actually brought this up originally back in chapter 5. I don't know if you if you noticed that, but way back in chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, verse 13, chapter 5, Ecclesiastes, verse 13, he says, There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. In other words, there, especially in the context. Um, he's talking about, you know, riches aren't very, they're not very lasting, they're not permanent, you can't trust in them. And then he's saying, among all those things, 
hoarding really just injures the hoarder. You know, hoarding is really a bad thing for the hoarder. Well, here he's saying don't hoard. He's saying don't hoard. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And, whether, and then he says, whether a tree falls. And there he's talking about death. Most, uh, most reliable Bible teachers on this text uh, have, 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 um, have agreed that what he's talking about here is, he's, he's saying, don't hoard, and guess what? Um, you know, you're going to um, have only a limited opportunity to give, and after you die, the opportunity is gone. It's gone. You're done. So that's number three. That's the third thing he's saying. The fourth thing is in verse four. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. And here he's talking about excuses. He's saying that people come up with excuses for not helping other people. Um, watches. Watches or looks. He's saying this person looks and they recognize, they, they admit that there is a giving opportunity, but they come up with reasons not to do it. Oh, the time is not right. Oh, I'm in a hurry. Oh, I don't know what they're going to do with the money. Oh, I'll be wasting my money. Oh, I may not have what I need for myself. The bottom line is, in verse 4, he's giving excuses. He's, he's thinking about excuses that people give. He who watches the wind, verse 4, will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not, will not reap. He's saying, you are seeing the need, but you are coming up with reasons not to do it. You're coming up with reasons. You're, you're, you're finding, you know, life's existencies, life's happenings always give us reasons and, and, and excuses. They always give us rationalizations. And that's what he's saying. You're rationalizing. You're rationalizing. And you're being too careful. This is not the time to be careful, he's saying when it comes to giving. Many people say, well, if I give to that person on the corner who's got a sign and, you know, need money or whatever, what are they going to do with it? They're going to go get a bottle of wine. Well, you know what? I don't think it's a stretch to extrapolate from this verse and this verse in the midst of this passage. And in fact, he's going to actually say that in the next verse. And that is, verse 5, he's going to say, leave that to God. Leave it to God. God only wants you to act faithfully. And whether that person squanders what you give them or not, that's not really a reason to not do it. That's not a reason to stop. Let God handle that. And that's what he says in verse 5. Just as you do not know the path of the wind... And how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. He's saying God's in control of all these excuses you're giving. God's in control of those things. Why are you trying to be in control of them? You're not in control of them. Look what he says there. Morning and evening. You know what that's saying? That's saying all the time. All the time there are opportunities. And all the time you have opportunities to give and then he says uh, he says morning or evening do not be idle more do not be idle 
You know what he's saying? He's saying that all times are equal. All times are valid. Every time you have an opportunity to give to someone, it's a valid opportunity. It's not to be downplayed. There is a verse in Proverbs I want us to go look at. A lot of parallels with Proverbs in Ecclesiastes. Over in chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 3, and uh, chapter 3, verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back. Tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. One more reason, uh, and there are many, reinforcing the idea that this may have been Solomon who wrote Ecclesiastes. Again, we can't be dogmatic. I've said that many times. But uh, it seems very, very likely that Solomon wrote this. So those are the six uh, uh, points that the writer of Ecclesiastes is making about giving. They're succinct. They are brief. But they're powerful. And they're hard-hitting. And I think uh, we do well to take take them to heart. So in the bigger context, why is he saying these things? Because he's moving gradually to the end of his writing, the end of his book, and not coincidentally to the end of the human life. In fact, when we look at our next section, he's going to be talking about life. And how it will soon come to an end. Look at verse 9. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. You know. And at the end of that, verse 10, he says, the prime of life is fleeting. And in the next chapter, 12, he will describe the end of life. He'll describe the end of an individual's existence. And the bigger picture here, don't forget, is he's giving us these ten sermon points to tell us how to navigate life in a faithful way. Obviously, we have to have Jesus Christ to do that, to have the power to do it. But he is giving this, um, these examples and the, this advice for the person who has chosen to let God be God. Remember, we made that case earlier, that he, he, he laid down the principle as early as chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, verse 24, where he said, you have two choices. Yes, man fell, but God locked man into that consequence, into the corruption that that fall created. Man sinned and fell, and corruption ensued, and God made the corruption permanent and locked us into it so that we would cry out to him in response. And he's saying that's your that is your response. That's the correct response. And he gives those two examples a few a couple different times of people who do and then people who don't. And so there all of this sermon really is is telling us how to live in the right way. Live in, in the correct response. That is giving God the right to be God. And since we still we can do that and love God, but it still doesn't change our environment, does it? Not until the end of the world. The environment will still be corrupt until then. It'll still have the consequence of the fall. 
And the writer of Ecclesiastes is simply telling us how to live in this corrupt world. How to navigate it. How to make life in it. How to cope. So that's what he's done here. He's talking about giving. And he's talking about it in connection with the end of your life. So the next thing, the, the next way we can divide this section is that uh, for the rest of the chapter, verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, he's talking about enjoying life. Let's go ahead and read that. The light is pleasant, verse 7, and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. All he's saying is enjoy life. Enjoy life. He's not saying anything more complicated than that. Now there's some nuances we want to look at, of course. But all he's really saying is, there's nothing wrong with enjoying life. And in fact, he has said that this is the eighth time. You may recall, we counted them in previous uh, lessons. And I'll go ahead and mention them again. But he, we counted them. He says eight times that... What you do in response to what God has done with the human condition, what God has done with living in this world, in this age, in this time period, between his comings, his first coming, well, really creation, between creation and his second coming, his coming again to the earth. He's saying during this time, you do what you can, and you live the way I'm describing, and, and all that. And he says... A good part of that is just being content with God. Being content with what he's done. And he has said this eight times. Let me read these to you again. And if you haven't jotted them down, you probably should. Chapter 2, verse 24. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Chapter 3, verse 22. Chapter 5, verse 18. Chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 8, verse 15. Chapter 9, verse 7. And what we just saw, chapter 11, verses 7 through 10. He's saying, cultivate contentment. Work on it. Accept it. Choose it. So let's, uh, let's see if we can uh, unpack this a little bit. There's a little bit here to unpack. The light is pleasant, verse 7. And it is good for the eyes uh, to see the sun. He's saying, you know, there's nothing wrong with basking in the sun and enjoying life. Nothing wrong with it. Do it while you can. Do it while you can. Look at verse 8. Indeed, if a man should live, the word live, live many years. He's saying, you know, life is brief. Life is brief. Verse 10. Uh, let's jump down to 10. And then we'll go, we'll go back to 9. Remove vexation from your heart. He's saying, you know, uh, uh, don't, don't focus on how bad things are in life. All the inequities, all the injustices, 
all the bad things that happen, all the random evil it seems in life. He says, don't focus on that. Don't blame God for it either, which is what the other person does, the person who does not choose to let God be God. He says, don't, don't be indignant toward God. Don't blame God. Don't focus on all the bad things in life. And there are, there are many. There are many. And put away pain from your body. That's all he's saying. Bask in the sin while you can. But look at verse 9. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for these things. It sounds like he's saying, okay, live it up, but you're going to be judged for it. No, he's not saying that. What he's saying is the same thing Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Paul was talking to the church in Corinth, and he said, you know, you guys are kind of living large. You're living it up. You're being kings, he says. And he says, I would, I would that I could be a king with you and, and, and enjoy life with you. But he says, you know what? This is not the time to live for life. And that's what, that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. He's saying, live life, enjoy it, but don't let it be your God. Let God be your God, not your life. Does that make sense? In other words, trust in God, don't trust in life. And he calls it, what does he call it? Where is it? Look at verse 8. At the end of verse 8, and also at the end of verse 10. End of verse 8. Everything that is to come will be, what? Futility. End of verse 10. And the prime of life is fleeting. Trusting in the wonders and the lovely things in life is a trap. And it is empty. And it is fleeting. Trust in God. Enjoy life, but don't make life your God. That's what he's saying. Okay, so let's... Um, I think there's time enough to uh, look at the last part of the Seize the Day um, message. And that is just uh, a few verses. Uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. So let's go ahead and read that. Chapter 12, last chapter. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun, the light, the moon, and the stars are darkened, and clouds return after the rain. In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble, and mighty men stoop, the grinding ones stand idle because they are few, and those who look through windows grow dim. And the doors in the street are shut, as the sound of the grinding mill is low, and one will rise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place, and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the keeper berry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home, while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. 
Wow. A little bit of a, <laughs> a little bit of a dirge, isn't it? A little funeral dirge almost. Um, what he's saying in you know the the overall heading of seize the day is he's saying aging. This is one through verses one through uh, eight of chapter twelve. He's saying aging is life's final lesson. Yes, aging is life's final lesson. Obviously final, because when you when you when you're aged and you die, there's no more no more lessons to be to be had. But it's the final lesson in in something that you'll remember earlier that the writer of Ecclesiastes talked about the people who try to pretend. We saw that in chapter 7. If you look at chapter 7, he's describing people who try to pretend. They party down and they, you know, go after mirth and pleasure and laughter. And he's saying those people are just pretending that life isn't broken, that life isn't corrupted. Well, he says now, he says, if those people didn't know it then, they certainly will when they get old. And when you get old, there's no longer any doubt that there's something wrong with life. There's something wrong with it. It wasn't meant to end this way. It wasn't meant to end at all. People were born to be eternal. And in fact, spiritually they are. But they were even born to be physically eternal. Made to be physically eternal. And everyone knows that. Everyone somehow has a feeling in them the writer even says that God has set eternity in their hearts. I think that's chapter 5. And what happens is everyone knows that there's something wrong with dying. There's something not right about it. It shouldn't happen. And he says, this is part of God setting up a riddle in life whose final act, whose final nuance is our death. And he's saying, even that, if nothing else, our death should convince us that life is broken. Life is bad. Life, there's something wrong with it. This shouldn't be the way it is. Turn with me, if you will, over to Psalms. And we will look at a psalm that is kind of famous. It's, it's pretty well known. And that is Psalm 90. Uh, the record tells us in, in the text that uh, the, 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 person, the people who transcribed this into the book of Psalms, which actually has five books, that's a whole other uh, discussion. But in the book of Psalms, the, the transcribers who, who uh, put it down for us actually put a note there that this was actually written by Moses. And the Jews have a tradition that Moses actually wrote several, uh, in fact, ten psal uh, psalms. And you know, the psalms aren't writ all written by David. In fact, David only has a, just a slight majority, only like 51 or 52 percent of the book. There's actually many other writers. But uh, here we have Moses, and he says something really interesting in Psalm 90. Let's start with uh, verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. 
Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Verse 11, Who understands the power of thine anger and thy fury according to the fear that is due thee? So teach us to number our days, that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be, and be sorry for thy servants? O satisfy us in the morning with thy loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Make us glad according to the days thou hast afflicted us, and the years we've seen evil. Yeah, count our days. Help us count our days. In other words, may we think of the fact that we aren't going to live forever. May we consider the fact that you've given us X amount of time and that's it. And to make use of it, and as I said, that the heading for this last section in Ecclesiastes is to be seize the day. May we seize the day. Carpe diem, as they have said in the past. Seize the day. So this section is aging his life's final lesson. And let's look at what he says back in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. He says, Remember also your Creator, what does he say? In the days of your youth, before, there's the key word, before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. What's he saying? Very simple. Very, very simple. He's, he's just saying... Determined to give God your best years. Believe God. Accept Him. Believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. When you are young and you have years ahead of you to serve Him, to love Him, to make Him known and to know Him, don't wait to the end of your life. Now, if you have come to the Lord in the end of your life, that's, that's great, that's wonderful. Nothing can replace that. But many of us who've done that have thought back and said, well, how much I wasted my life. How much of my best years I spent on myself and not on you. Something else the word before tells us, and he uses it several times, in fact, three times in just the first two verses. And what he's saying is, think about the finality of death. The word before makes us think, well, before what? Well, before it's all over. While there's still time, he's saying. Verse 2, before the sun, the light, and the moon, and the stars. The, the idea of sun there is, as you get older, and we know from previous use of the word sun in this book, that that, unlike all the other things there, moon, the light, and the stars, um... It's not a given that all those things are talking of light. Because he wouldn't give so many different examples of light. He would, you know, maybe use one or two. What he's probably doing, as we know from previous use of the word sun, is he's probably talking about chronology. He's probably talking about chronology. Because the ancients thought of the sun mostly in terms of chronology. Not light. So he says here, the sun. And I think what he's saying there is, as you get older, the days kind of rush along, and even more, they just sort of run together. You can't tell one from the other. How about the moon in verse 2? Well, that, in addition or instead of being just mere light, 
That may be life's energy and its vitality. The ancients long ago came to that conclusion. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot of words even in our language today that actually uh, hinge on that perception of the of the moon that it represents. Now, I'm not saying it's some mysterious, some mystical kind of power. I'm just saying the moon is often represented in uh, human existence. It's often represented, it's often stood in the place of vitality and life and energy. And then the stars in verse 2. The ancient Jews believed that the reference to the stars here, again, was not light. It was the five senses. Now, we do have the five senses described further on in the text, but at least some of them. But it's believed by many, and there's nothing wrong with this. You could believe it or not believe it, and it really won't affect much. But, if the, but, there, but there's a chance that he's talking about the five senses, and, and it, the, the background is a little bit, is a little bit uh, intricate. But it essentially is that the ancients thought of the stars as being only five. They believed there were only five stars. And, and we would say today, planets, not stars, because there are five planets that are visible with the naked eye. Uh, from Earth. Of course, Earth is not counted. Now, uh, you say, well, stars aren't planets. Well, in the ancient times, there was no distinction. Everything out there was a star. And in fact, the Gre it took the Greeks, it took the Greco-Roman era before there was a distinction made. And in fact, the word planet is actually a word that means moving star. That's what it means. So here's the ancient etymology, is what I'm saying, the ancient etymology of the, of the idea of stars. So whether or not uh, it is correct to look at the five senses, that is definitely fitting with the context, because that's what happens in old age. The five senses begin to be subdued. They begin to fall uh, into, you know, into some numbness, some, some, some you know, less perception of, of the senses, for sure. You know, and that is in uh, that is in keeping with uh, with uh, what's going on here. Verse three: In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble, well, who are the watchmen? Well, it's pretty it's pretty pretty much a solid consensus among Bible teachers that this is your your hands and your arms. By the way, the ancients never made a distinction between hands and arms; they were just considered one. So when you see the word hand, it's an arm. You see the word arm, it's a hand. It's the same thing. But anyway, the arms. Um, well, what is that? Well, that's kind of how we go through our days, and that's how we do our activity. It's how we make our living, isn't it? Is, is with our hands and our arms. He says those things begin to be used less and become less useful, right? Certainly. Certainly. Well, what about... Um, the mighty men stoop, the middle of verse 3. The mighty men stoop. Well, the fact that he's saying that, that, that they stoop should be a, should be a, um, should be a key. And, uh, and also, you know that the legs are the strongest muscles uh, in the body. So he's saying here that uh, your legs begin to become less useful. Definitely less useful. All right, what else do we have? We have um, 
The grinding ones stand idle because they are few. Well, what is that? Well, I think that's, it's pretty well accepted that that's your teeth. Yeah, that's your teeth. And what else? Uh, one will arise. No, let's see. Uh, there are few. And those who, verse 3, those who look through windows grow dim. Well, that's pretty plain. That's the eyes. That's the eyes. Whether you call that just the eyes begin to fail, the you know the eyes as you get older don't focus properly. That's why you know bifocals and trifocals. And then of course there's also the the issue of uh, cataracts for sure. I've already had both my eyes um, uh, have had cataract uh, surgery. Uh, what else does he say? Verse four and the doors on the street are shut. And this is referring to the body. And what he's saying is the body becomes a house as you get older and older, particularly in, in ripe old age, the body now becomes a house that is barely lived in. The doors and the windows are shut. Because the house really is just sort of, you know, you're withdrawn from life physically. You're just getting through your existence, your life. And what else does he say here? Um, verse 4, And one will arise at the sound of a bird. Well, it's pretty well known among those of us who are older that sleep is sleep is difficult. Um, we wake up early. We, we, we don't sleep as well or as long as we used to. That's pretty, pretty standard, isn't it? And then he says, um, and the daughters of song will sing softly. End of verse 4. Well, of course, that's, you know, that's the hearing, for sure. That's the hearing. Verse 5. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. Well, that, there's two things there. Let's take one at a time. Men are afraid of a high place. Well, that's, that's, you know, a reluctance to climb ladders. You know, that, that very, that's very easy to, to make that, uh, to make that uh, interpretation. Very simple. And then he says, an end of terrors on the road. Well, that is an older person, man or woman, who in old age begins to realize, especially men, begins to realize they can no longer defend themselves. And they become, if they're smart, they become more situa situationally aware. Situ <laughs> can't even say it. Situationally aware. In other words, um, they look around them a lot. They're careful in at night in a parking lot. They, you know, are careful as they walk somewhere into a building or out of a building, uh, to their car or whatever. Um, this is something you do as you get older. You try to develop a situational awareness because you know that you, as you're more feeble and less strong, you're less able to defend yourself physically. Then what does he say? The almond tree blossoms. Uh, it's pretty much uh, agreed that that is the white uh, fuzz that's on the flower or on the bud of the almond tree, uh, and that refers to white hair. It refers to the older person's white hair. All right. And then the grasshopper drags himself along. That is the older person's, uh, this represents the older person's um, stumbling, not necessarily stumbling, but their uneven gait. As they walk, they're 
their their gait, their their pacing of their walk is not as smooth and as steady and as um, and as powerful as it once was. And that is very very true for sure. And then we have the keeper berry is ineffective, and there's some there's some debate about this one, and some people leave it completely alone. But what the people do who do comment on it, the, the different Bible scholars, is they say that what this is, is the capability was an aphrodisiac, aphrodisiac at least um, considered one, in, in, in ancient times. So what he's saying is, among all these other things, the older person's body is no longer capable, or even in some cases desirous, of having sexual intercourse. That's what he's saying. Uh, there it is, bald and, and, and rude, but, but, but there it is. And then he says, For man goes to his eternal home, the end of verse 5, while mourners go about in the street. Well, that, that's pretty plain. But here's something really interesting in verse 5. This mention of an eternal home. Now, we talked about this earlier, but among all the faithful people in, well, all people really, all people in the Old Testament, whether they were believers or not, whether they were Jews or not, whether they were believers or not, faithful or not, all of them had a little bit different from one to the next uh, concept of the afterlife, of immortality. And many Bible teachers will tell you that the Old Testament, they'll just tell you a blanket statement that that was that afterlife was completely absent from the Old Testament. And that is not true. We could make a concerted argument against that. I mean, you could just pick a few things out of the air, like when David, the king, when King David said that when his son died, his son couldn't come to him, but he would be going to, but he'd be going to his son, his dead son. Or how about Jesus, who said, you know, you talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as if they're dead men, but they're not. They're still alive. He said that in his day. So, and there's many, 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 many other instances of mentions of an afterlife in the Old Testament. Um, either in the Old Testament or, or in regard to Old Testament people. And, as I say, you could we could spend hours on that. But... Here is one uh, um, reference to the afterlife. And there's another one in verse 7. But uh, we'll get there in a moment. So now verse 6. Remember him before the silver cord is broken. It appears that uh, ancient Jews, uh, rather poetically or prosaically, regarded the, the body and the soul which, of course, when we say that they're separated, that's death. When you separate the body from the soul, that's, that's death. And, and that's even today, we, we say that. But in the ancient times, they actually called it tied with a silver cord. Uh, silver being precious, cord being fixed. So it's very poetic. It's obviously a very poetic thing. Not a, not a physical cord. So the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, before the silver cord is broken. He's already made many references to death and dying, and now he says, death, before the soul leaves the body. That's what he's saying, before the spirit leaves the body, okay? In other words. 
Uh, what else he say? And the golden bowl is crushed. What's the golden bowl? A lot of people think that's the mind. That that's the mind. And then what else do we have? The pitcher by the well is shattered. The pitcher somehow is regarded as the lungs. I'm not sure how that works, but that is kind of the the uh, the reference many people make. And then here's the powerful one. And the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Now, some um, some Bible versions have different words there. The NLT, uh, which which kind of does really good things and some not so good things, but the NLT actually has the 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 word pulley here. The pulley is broken or crushed, and. What it's getting at by saying that is this is a gear. This is a wheel or a pulley or a gear. And what you want to think about is basically this. Watchworks. Watchworks. Even today we say that, don't we? We call the heart the ticker, don't we? The ticker. Like it's, as if it were a, a clock. That's what he's saying. This is the heart. This is the heart. And of course that's more or less the, the last thing that that uh, operates before you die, isn't it? The last part to fail. So verse 7, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. There's another reference to immortality, to an afterlife. You can't say, and we made this case early on, but you can't say that the writer of Ecclesiastes is not a believer in the afterlife. In fact, he's a faithful believer in Jesus Christ. Now, you can argue, well, he doesn't know the name of Jesus Christ. No, he didn't, but either did Abraham. And yet Paul says in Galatians that Abraham was preached the gospel. Well, how did that work? And even going back to Adam, you can go all the way back to Adam, and I think in Genesis chapter 2 or 3. Let's go look. I want to show you something. Let's see if I got this right. Chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 4. And it says in chapter 4, verse 3, It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Now hold it. Before we go any further, you know this story. Cain's going to kill his brother Abel. And that's another lesson altogether. But the, less, the thing I want to point out is the offering. Here we are at the beginning of man's existence, the beginning of human history, and the born children of the first parents in the world are already offering offerings. They're already making sacrifices to God. And lest you miss it, the point, these are animals being offered. They're being killed and the blood shed. And this, of course, is a pre-type, a prefiguring of the death of Jesus Christ. All conservative, faithful Bible expositors will say this. So you can't tell me that the gospel didn't exist in the Old Testament. It is rife. It is replete with the Old Testament. And many, many 
uh, pieces of evidence can be brought uh, to bear on this. So that's that's the point that you know the point I'm making there is just that the writer of Ecclesiastes, and we made this point early on, that whoever he is, Solomon or not Solomon, either way, and we and we and we looked at both sides of that of that question. Whoever he is, he's a faithful man. He's a believer. And he knows there's an afterlife, and he knows that man will give an account. Those of us who believe in Jesus Christ are only our only claim, our only cry when we come before God is Jesus. And God says, yes, you're right. Enter into your heavenly abode. Well, that's, um, that's our, our, our lesson for today. We only have a few verses left. Um, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. And that's going to be the last section that the writer of Ecclesiastes is going to um, speak to us, the last uh, piece of his, his, his book, his document. And we'll see uh, what he does there. Uh, and we're going to call that the teacher's final plea. Kind of his, kind of his, parting, um, kind of his parting exhortation, his final plea. I hope that you've been um, gaining that you've been benefiting from this. I hope that although the gospel is obscured in Ecclesiastes, it is there. And I hope that um, whether you have uh, submitted to that, uh, that claim of God in your life in the gospel or not, that you have at least uh, been exposed to it and, and you, you, you know of its existence. I think a little bit later, after we're done with the book, we'll, we'll actually spend a little time talking about um, how the, the, the gospel uh, is expressed uh, kind of at a, at, a, at a different level in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. It's there in both, but it's a little bit differently uh, uh, displayed. And so we'll look at that in, in a brief, uh, in a brief uh, message. And I hope that'll help you. Um, and that you have also found that the book of Ecclesiastes is not a mysterious book. It's not a closed book. It's not a negative book. It's not a depressing book. And I hope that you're seeing that and uh, that its encouragement to love God is hitting your heart where it counts. So until then... Believe God.